Book of Joel is where we're going to be this morning. Book of Joel in the Old Testament. And we are continuing to work our way through the F260 reading plan. So if you're still joining us or if you're just now joining us and you've not yet started that plan, it's not too late. Just pick up where we are. And maybe you have some time to catch up, maybe you don't, that's quite all right. But the goal is as you're reading throughout the week, the sermon's going to come from something you've read. So hopefully you're starting to, to uh, think on it a bit, maybe start to dig into it a little bit. And then when we come to the, this time of our worship service, hopefully that allows you then to go deeper. Maybe the Lord's been preparing you for, for something specific in that. But Joel is where we'll be this morning. It's a small book, three chapters. It's one of those minor prophets, we call it a minor prophet because, not because they were less important than, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah, but because the content, the length of their book is shorter. They're just called minor prophets for that reason. But these are some gems. These books that are, that, are, that are likely to get skipped over as you're turning, trying to find another book of the Bible, likely Joel is all stuck together as two or three pages in your Bible. So you could completely overlook Joel as you're going through. But these are, these are some of these books where when you read them, you're going... And especially once you understand the context of what was going on in their day, you realize that's not so far removed from what's going on in our day. And the message that they were given to the people in their day is a message that we need to hear for us today. And I, and I think you're going to find it's no different today because you've, you've all been living through it, right? We have been through some pretty chaotic, pretty trying times over the last three months. And right now I'm just talking about the pandemic, right? Let's just talk about that for a moment where this has been a global impact across the world. It has affected health for some people. It has affected psyches for for many people. It has affected the economy. You've been uh, unable to do what you enjoy doing. Um, We're unable to gather for worship as we are used to doing. Um, It has impacted the economy. Businesses are closing. Some businesses are now having to recover. Some of you are experiencing that kind of stuff. And all because of just that, that global pandemic, right? And then now add on top of that the, the unrest that's going on in, in our world, in our country particularly, right? The, the violence, the injustice, the, the, uh, the, the protests that are turning into riots because they're being hijacked and, and the, the, the looting. I mean, just the chaos that's taking place. And you know what? You can land anywhere you want on how you view those things, but what we can all agree on is it's happening, right? And it's causing chaos and unrest And so this morning, as we turn to the book of Joel, the question we're going to be wrestling with that the book of Joel helps us with is how do we respond to that, right? There's a lot of ways we could. This is not going to be a a, a three-point, here's what you can do next steps, but this is more, how do I process this? How do I respond as a follower of Christ? How does the church, the gathering of the people that follow Christ, how do we respond when we face, and I'm going to call it calamity this morning, Right? But that's just to encompass all kinds of things. We could be talking about uh, tornadoes. We could be talking about tsunamis. We could be talking about all kinds of natural disasters. We could be talking about a war that, that takes place. I mean, a calamity could be all kinds of things. But how do we respond when we're faced with this kind of thing? And so this morning in the book of Joel, one thing we're going to find is that God uses calamity to call his people to repentance. And that's not a place we typically go. See, what we're, what we're quick to do, and there's places for different responses, of course, but what we're quick to do is go do something, go say something, but very, very rarely are we going to stop and say, God, what, what are you doing in this, and how do you want me to respond personally, inwardly, with regard to my relationship with you? Right? Because what we're going to find is God uses these types of events 
to ultimately call us to repentance. And so we're gonna see this in the book of Joel. And the first thing, we're, we're, gonna, see the, we're gonna look at the whole book, but we're gonna just summarize it. So I'm gonna be skipping around. And my goal is one, to give you a flavor for the book. And so we're not going to read every verse, of course. So I'm going to skip around. I'll tell you where we're going and we'll have it up here on the screen. But then also I'm trying to pull out the high points of the book to kind of help you get the idea of what's going on. The first thing we're going to see is that we can't deny it. We experience calamity. You cannot escape the experience. You can hide your head in the sand if you want. You cannot turn on the news if you want. But you cannot escape in your lifetime experiencing some type of calamity. You cannot escape uh, being impacted by some type of calamity, regardless of what it is. You are going to experience. Okay, we've got to start there. And so that's where Joel starts. And so if you'll look with me at the book of Joel, we're going to start chapter 1, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 and 2 here, just to let us kind of know who's go- what's going on in this book, who's talking. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. The elders would have been the leaders of the, uh, the Jewish people at the time. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now, just stop there for a moment because there are a few things we need to to help frame our context. Remember last week, I said at this point in the the people of God, nation of Israel's history, the nation has been split. There's been a civil war that has taken place, and it has divided the nation of Israel between north and south which gets confusing as you're reading in this point because in, in, the, in the scriptures at this point as you read, you might read about Israel. But a lot of times at this point, the, the, the reference to Israel is gonna be primarily referring to the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, right? And then it's gonna talk about Judah, which is really one tribe, but it becomes a reference to the southern kingdom, which is made up of two tribes. So Israel, northern kingdom, Judah, southern kingdom, they're split, And so you you have to understand where you are in the context of the story of the Bible so that you know who's being being referenced here. Uh, Joel is primarily a prophet to the southern kingdom. Sometimes they overlapped and a prophet would speak to both and then sometimes they would speak to just one. Now, what we find in the book of Joel is he's primarily speaking to the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah and, and I believe it was Benjamin that were joined with them, right? At this point in Israel's history, the northern kingdom is not in existence, It has already been overrun by the Assyrians. That happens in 722 BC, and then they are scattered about, right? So now you've got this this, this, this southern tribe, and that's who he's talking to at this point, okay? So he says, hear this, you elders, give ear, and he starts talking about, has such a thing happened in your day? Have you ever heard of, of stuff like this? Now, could we not say the same thing right now with some of the stuff that we've experienced? Have you ever heard of some of this stuff in your day? Now, some of you, you're going, lived through some of this before. It might have looked different, but lived through similar things. But as a, as a world, many people are saying, and many generations right now are saying, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever seen this? All right, we keep going. Uh, look, at, look at verse three with me there. Verse three, he says, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So by now you should be going, well, what's going on in Joel's day? What is it that he's seeing that he's saying, we've never seen anything like this? Well, go to verse four. Verse four, he says this. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. There is a plague of locusts going on in the day of Joel like they have never seen before. And what Joel is saying is there is absolutely nothing left. 
because one type of locust might come by and, and, it, and it eats this, but it leaves a little bit, but then another type of locust comes by and it continues to where the, the last group left off and it's just a complete devastation. And he said, have you ever seen like, we've never seen a plague like this where everything is destroyed. Now, we're not gonna look at the next several verses because we're gonna skip next to verse 13, but what Joel starts to do is he speaks to the, um, the person who enjoys life. And he calls him a drunkard, right? Because that's how he enjoys his life. And so he says, hey, drunkard, you can't even get drunk anymore because there's no fruit on the vine to make wine. Your enjoyment's gone. He, he talks to the people who gather to worship. You can't bring certain types of offerings anymore because there's no wine to bring wine offerings. There's no grain to bring grain offerings. So your, your worship is disrupted. And then he talks to, to business owners. In this case, it would be farmers. And he's going, you can't bring anything to the threshing floor, the economy has been so devastated. Your enjoyment, your life of pleasure, um, your, your worship, and your economy are disrupted. Hello. Have we been there? We, we, we're still kind of there, aren't we? I and mean, we're, we're just starting to come out, and, and Joel's saying, have you ever seen anything like this? It's so devastating, and it's so far-reaching. And by the way, it doesn't discriminate in who it impacts, because these locusts have come and they've destroyed everything. So now jump with me uh, to verse 13 because what he's going to do is now, having described the devastation, he's going to call people to lament. He's going to call people to mourn, to enter into the tragedy, into the devastation, and he's going to call them to mourn, and he calls different groups of people to mourn. And so you see with me in verse 13 here, he talks first to the, to the, um, the priest. He says, put on sackcloth and lament. O priests, well, O ministers of the altar, go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. So these are descriptions of people who would be mourning. Put on sackcloth. If that's, that's something you would wear when you were mourning, right? And we go on and we look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So again, let's, talk, let's get not only priests, not only the people who are working in the house of the Lord, not only should you be mourning, but let's call all the people to mourn for what's going on. Verse 15, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from all, the Almighty, it comes. Now we're going to dive into this here in just a moment, but this phrase right there, the day of the Lord, it's a key phrase. In the Old Testament, particularly, particularly in the prophets of the Old Testament, and it's a key phrase in the book of Joel. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of the day of the Lord, and then we're going to keep reading about the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a phrase that can be used in different ways depending on the context. One, it can refer to a, a soon coming day where, where the people of God or the enemies of God might be experiencing the judgment of God. Right? And so, so this plague, by the way, this plague of locusts that the people of Judah are experiencing, likely a judgment of God under the old covenant. Why do I say that? Because if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I think it's somewhere around verse 4 or 5, somewhere in there, but it talks about Israel, when you live in the land, if you are faithful to obey my covenant, you'll receive blessings. And he lists off blessings, things like crops will grow in their time, rain will come when it's needed to come, um, you'll be at peace with your enemies. But then he has a section where he says, but if you disobey, then these are the types of things that will come on you. The crops won't grow, you'll be in famine, or you'll have a plague of locusts come on. That's specifically mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. And so when we find the kingdom of Judah experiencing a plague of locusts, it's likely because of disobedience on their part a lack of faithfulness to obey God and be faithful to the covenant. 
Now, I say that because sometimes the day of the Lord could refer to an immediate or a soon coming judgment. But then there are other times where it, refused, it refers to a future judgment. And oftentimes, even if it's referring to a soon coming judgment, that soon coming judgment is meant to point us to the far, the future coming judgment, right? And so in that future coming judgment, it's, it's twofold. If you're an enemy of God, if you are someone who has rejected God, then it is a day of God's wrath for you. It is a day where you will experience God's wrath for the way you've lived your life and, and the, the, the way you've treated God's people. If you are a, a person who belongs to God, if you are one of God's people, then it is a day of salvation for you. You still have to give an account to the Lord for the way you live your life, but you won't be judged to condemnation. That's why in the New Testament, Paul would say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are not exempt from standing before the Lord and giving an account of how we live. And so there, there's that future judgment that, that the day of the Lord is looking to, and that's where Joel's gonna go now. Because he's taking a present day experience, a locust plague that they've never seen anything like, and he's now gonna, to call the people, he's saying, you need to mourn over this, you need to realize the devastation, the severity of it, and now he's gonna shift gears. Because calamity reminds us of the coming judgment of God. And we get that idea from places like this in Joel, because now as we switch to chapter two, he's now gonna start talking about this day of the Lord that's coming. And he's using a present day experience and he's saying, let this make you consider what's coming ahead, which will be far worse for those who are opposed to God. Okay, so look with me uh, at chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And so this is a call to attention. Sometimes a horn could be blown for battle, but other times it could be called as people gather together to mourn or they gather together to lament something. And he's saying, call the people together. Blow the trumpet because his day is coming. If you look with me at verse two, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all the generations. So now he's looking forward and there's gonna be a, this, this army. So now he's taken this physical event, the locust plagues, and he's using and he's saying, just like you've never seen anything like this before with these locusts, there's coming a day, uh, the day of the Lord, where there's gonna be an army like you've never seen before. And so he, you see how he shifts gears. And he's saying, just like you've experienced now, let your experience now point you to something that's gonna be far greater and far worse. And it's gonna be like you've never seen before. So he, he's looking forward to a day when there's gonna be this army that's gonna come and overtake the people. And so he describes what that, that's gonna be like. It's, it's gonna be a devastating day. It's gonna be a day, like I said, where you will feel the wrath of God because God is wrathful. We love to talk about God being holy and just and compassionate and gracious and merciful, and he is all of those things. But did you hear I said just? Because in, in, in God being just, what that means is you deal with injustice. And if God fails to deal with injustice, then he's not just. And when God deals with injustice, what God is dealing with is sin, because sin is anything that violates the very glory of God. 
It's, it's anybody who rejects God. It's anybody who goes uh, their own way and tries to worship in their own way. It's anyone who opposes God. That's sin. It's in our heart, our mind, our heart, our attitudes, our actions, the way we live our lives. And so when God acts in justice, he's pouring out his wrath on sin. That's why in, in Romans, Paul would start out, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and he'll say, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of people. And then he'll go and he'll list some of that unrighteousness, ultimately leading to our need for someone to stand in the place and take that wrath for us. Right? So God, God is, gonna, is, is warning the people through Joel, there's a day coming like you've never seen. Jump with me to verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So the picture that's being painted is this is going to be a weighty day. It's a day that's future. What we're talking about here is the day that Christ returns. It's the day when, when right now we are waiting and only the Father knows the day when he's going to send the Son back, but we are awaiting that day when he comes back. That day when he comes back is the day that Joel is talking about. And depending on your relationship with the Lord will depend on how you, can ex- how you will experience that day. And Joel says, it's going to be a great and awesome day. And he doesn't mean that as in, it's going to be a great and awesome day. No, he's saying, it's going to be a great and awesome day and feel the weight of that. Because who can endure it? We go on and look at verse 12. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Look at verse 13. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. In verse 14, who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here's what Joel has shifted now. He's saying, you're experiencing something that you've never experienced before. Now let me point you to something in the future that you're, it's going to be like something you've never experienced before and it's going to be a great and awesome day. It's going to be weighty. Who can endure it? But he calls them to repentance. He says, but turn. So, so if, I, if I go back here to, to verse 12, he says, return to me with all your heart. Turn back, right? So the picture is these people, they've been following after other gods. They've been turning away from the Lord. And now, now God is saying, turn back to me. Repentance is the word we use for this because the word repentance means I'm, I'm going one way and I, and I turn away from it and I go the other direction. And so if, if I'm following after idols, I leave those idols, I stop depending upon those idols and instead I turn to the true and living God. If I'm living a life that is, is sinful and is, is opposed to God, I leave that way of living and I turn and I live a life that is honoring to the Lord. He says, he says return to me with all your heart. And then he says, rend your garments and uh, rend your hearts and not your garments. You know what he's saying there? It's about the inside more than it is the outside. It's not enough to look like you're repentant. It's not enough to look like you're obeying the Lord so that other people see that. No, no, he says, I want your heart. So it starts there and then the outward follows. If you start with the outward and you just try to conform or reform your behavior 
and you never address the N-word, you're going to be like Jesus described the people in his day, the religious leaders. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're corroded and corrupted on the inside. And guess what? We have way too many people in, in the church across the world who are like that who claim the name of Christ, and they look good on the outside, they talk good, they, they maybe relate in the hour or two that you interact with them throughout the week, but their heart is far from God. Because if we were to get a picture of their heart and their mind, the things they think, the way they treat people behind closed doors, we'd go, there's no evidence of life in you at all. No evidence of the Spirit in you at all. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord. And look how the Lord is described here. Now, you, know, you, you might recognize this if you've been following your reading plan. You saw it in Exodus as the way God reveals himself to Moses. And so, so Joel's picking up on that and he's reminding the people, return to the Lord. And here's why I'm calling you to return because he is, he is gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And that's the word we've highlighted several times throughout the last couple months. It's chesed, that faithful, unconditional type of love that is given from one who is greater to one who is lesser, one who has everything to offer to someone who has nothing to offer, and yet he freely gives it. He is, he is abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster, and, and Joel says, who knows if he might? In other words, hey, it's not too late to turn, and, and who knows if you turn, the Lord might relent from the disaster that you're experiencing. Joel is calling the people to repent in the face of the present calamity that they're experiencing, but he's saying this should be something that reminds you of what's coming and should make you look inward now so that you repent now, so that you prepare your heart now for that day. Jump with me to verse 25. This is one of my, well, it's, it is my favorite verse from Joel. In verse 25, this is God speaking. If the people were to repent, and, and, and when God responds, he says this in verse in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Think about it. They're experiencing a, 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 a plague like they've never experienced before. It's complete and utter devastation. And yet God is able to say to them, if they turn back to them, he says, I will restore those years that the locusts have eaten. I want to pause there for a moment because I want to say to some of you, some of you are looking at your life and you're going, I waited too long to turn to the Lord or I wish I would have known what I know now 20 years ago or I, I can't fix the, 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 the life that I'm now leading because of the things I've done in the past or maybe you're just even looking at the last week and you're going, I, I've just blown it and so therefore you've allowed yourself to just spiral because that's what we do, right? Oh, I've blown it now so I might as well just go ahead and, and give in. No, listen, this, this is for you. God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Have you, have you not been the type of dad that you want to be? Have you not been the type of husband or wife or mother that you, you want to be? And you're looking at it going, I've wasted all this time, it's too late. It's not too late. Because God can, can take the, the next four years and do more in the next four years than perhaps he's done in the last 40 God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He's that kind of God, and, and it's nothing to him. And, and so you think about the people in the Bible, like um, think Moses, for instance. Moses was 40. He was raised in Egypt. He was 40 when he ran away from Egypt. He spent 40 more years in the desert. It was at 80 that God called him to go deliver the people from, from Egypt. 80. And then he wandered with them for 40 years in the desert. 
He was 120 when he died. Now, I know we we're not living that long, but he was 80 before, before he was starting to be used by God in, in a way. You think about Jesus who lived his life uh, maybe about 30 years or so, and we don't have a whole lot about what he did in those uh, 30 years, but the, the, the point is those final three, those final two and a half to three years that he lived, he did more in those few years than most people accomplish in their lifetime. And I get it, he's God, right? He should do more, right? But you, you get my point that, that God is a God who time is not, not a limit for him. Time is a limit for us. God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So if you've given up, and if you're thinking, I can't be that person, I can't grow into that, I can't ever have, maybe God's saying to you this morning, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But maybe you first gotta turn to him because maybe you've been running your own, your own race and you've been blazing your own path. Okay? All right, let's go to the Verse 28. And still talking about a future day, God's saying this is what's going to happen in that day. And so verse 28, in verse 28, he says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun, verse 31, shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls." And so Joel is looking forward to a day, and maybe you recognize this when we went through the book of Acts. This is what Peter quotes. This is what Peter quotes when he's given that sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he's saying this is what Joel spoke about as God is pouring out the Spirit on the people. And, and part of what we, we just read there, we, we've already experienced, and part of it we haven't, right? And so we have seen, as we have read through the book of Acts, and as many of you have perhaps experienced, we have seen that the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. We've, we've seen prophecy of the Lord working in that way. We have seen dreams. I mean, you can read about some of this stuff, and some of you, this is your story, right? Your young men shall dream, see visions. In other words, what Joel is saying is there's going to be a day where this is not just limited to, to the man of God. This is not gonna, there's gonna be a day where it's not just limited to the prophet. God's gonna pour spirit out on all people, all types of people, uh, both male and female. It's not gonna be limited. And so we see that happening on the day of Pentecost and we experience it as the people living in this time. But then there's this part here. Wonders in heavens and earth, blood, fire, smoke, sun turned to dark. We haven't seen that yet. That's still coming. It's still coming. You see, because one of the things you have, to, you have to understand to understand the way the Bible unfolds is a concept of already, but not yet. There are many things where God has already started, but he's not yet brought it to fruition, complete fulfillment. There's some things where God has started, but it's gonna be completely fulfilled in the future. Take your salvation, for instance. God has started a good work in you, and Paul in Philippians says, I'm confident that he who began a good work will bring it about to completion. In other words, you're not done yet. Because God is still working on you. As long as you and I deal with sin, as long as you and I oppose God in our hearts and our minds and, and we're tempted to follow in our, in our fleshly nature, we deal with sin. As long as there's sickness and disease, we deal with the impact of sin. But there's gonna be a day, the day of the Lord, where those who are called by the name of God, that will be rid of their lives. 
They will no longer deal with sickness, disease, death, decay. The, the attitudes now, the heart, the, the, the mindsets that you, you struggle with that oppose God, those things will not be an issue anymore. But for those who oppose God, you see those signs, the, the moon darkening, and the, that's going to be warnings from them. It's not going to be a surprise for us. That's what the New Testament Jesus comes and says, don't be surprised by it. It's going to come like a thief in the night, but you, you don't have to be surprised by it. All right, and then we go to verse, uh, chapter 3 now. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for behold, in those days, still talking about the day when Christ comes back, the day of the Lord, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, verse two, we're gonna look at verse two. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. So do you see that? The nations will be gathered and God's gonna judge them based on how they have related to the people of God. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, the, the, the people of the Philistines, all these people are going to be judged based on how they've interacted with the nation of Israel. God is saying, I'm going to avenge my people. I'm going to bring justice to the times that they were wronged. He says still in verse 2, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. They are describing some evil things. And he's saying this is going to be the day of justice. Some of you are longing for for justice, for things that are taking place, for things that you've experienced, you've been wronged by people. This gets carried into the New Testament. Paul in Romans 12 says, um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't go and return evil for evil because there's a day coming where God will deal with all of it. This is one of the things as believers in Christ that we cling to because we see all the injustice, we see the violence, we see the wrong, and, and we're going, sometimes we're going, God, where are you? Why aren't you acting? And as we read through the scriptures, we see, you know what, there's a day coming where God is going to deal with all of that. It will not be swept under the rug. It will not be left undealt with. Even though now, from our experience, it's not being dealt with. Remember, there's no time limit on God. He's not bound by the time that you and I are experienced by. All right, jump to verse 16, last verse that we're gonna look at here. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Two experiences can happen on that day. The day of the Lord. One, it can be a day of great fear and judgment. Two, it can be a day where the Lord is a refuge for his people. That's, that, that's what we, we, we see as we read through the book of Joel present calamity that we all experience, and it's not the last time we'll experience this. You all might experience it on individual levels or we might experience it as groups, but each time that we experience calamity, here's what God wants us to do. At least, at least this one thing, if not other things, but at least this one thing is we need to use it as an opportunity to, to repent. God uses calamity to call his people to repentance. I should be looking inwardly and going, God, there's a day coming where the, the, the plague, the pestilence, the, the, the world pandemic that we just experienced, the discomfort, the disruption, it's nothing compared to that day. And I'm asking myself, am I ready for that day? And on, on one basic level, I'm asking myself, do I know the Lord? That's, that's where we start. Do, am I rightly related to you, Lord, at this point? Or am I, am I still opposing you? 
Have I, have I, have I trusted in Christ, the, the one who has come and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Or am I saying, yeah, but, but I can also go this way. Where do I stand in relationship to the Lord? Because if I am anywhere outside of Christ, if I, have, if I have, think I'm gonna somehow live my life in a way where at the end of, at the end of my life, the, the scales are gonna be put before me, my good deeds and my bad deeds are gonna be put on the scale, and if, if the bad deeds go down because they're greater, then I go down. But if the good deeds go down because they're greater, then I go up. If that's how I think, then it's gonna be a day of wrath for me. Because there's absolutely no way that you're ever going to be able to tip those scales in your favor. Because when you realize who the standard is, you can never meet a perfect and righteous standard on your own. Never. Even on our best day, our best things that we do, apart from, apart from the Spirit of God working in us, they are tainted and corrupted by the sin that lurks within us. And so those scales will always fall down with the, with the, with the, the bad deeds if that's what I'm relying on. But that's why Christ came. That's the beauty of the gospel. Because God knew that people could not reach the standard on their own because of sin. And so he came in the form of Jesus so that he could live and meet that perfect standard. And he did it on behalf of people. Sinful people. And then he went and he stood in the place of sinful people taking what they justly deserve, what we justly deserve, which is death because of sin so that we would not have to receive that death, which is why Paul could say there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he took that condemnation for us. He didn't take it for everyone. He took it for those who trust in him. He took it for those who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, this is not universalism. God, God's not coming about and saying, well, you did pretty good. No, he's gonna say, are you in my son? And he's gonna separate us based on that. And Jesus rose from the dead to a new type of spiritual life so that he was able to say to some of his closest friends, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, not only did he raise from the dead, but he's the one who gives that type of power and new life. And it comes only through Christ. And we talked about repentance. The way we respond to that is we repent. We stop trusting in whatever we're trusting in. Myself, whatever it is I'm, I'm following after, and I turn from that. And when you turn from one thing and you turn 180 degrees, you're turning to something. The question is, what do you turn to? Biblical repentance is I stop trusting in whatever it is I'm trusting in, and I turn and I trust in Christ. I repent and I believe. And for all of us, if we're a believer in Christ or not, what this does is it causes us to look inwardly. What's in my heart? What's lurking there, God? Maybe it's a specific type of thing going on in the world that causes us to shed light on particular attitudes in our heart. We've got some of that going on today. God, is there any of that in me right now? Is, is there any part of me that looks at people differently because of skin color, because of background, because of education, because of where you live, because of what family you are. Situations like this, at the very least, we should be going, God, is there any of that in me? Show me and cut it out of me. Put it to death. And then we, working with God, we put it to death. We take those, those steps that we need to take. Sometimes it's more general where it's, you know, it's a world pandemic and we're going, God, I haven't, I haven't thought about the coming judgment in a while. 
and it causes us to reflect on our life. God, if you were to come back now, am I ready for that? In the sense of like, if I were to stand before you now and you were, you were looking at my life, am I ready for that? Not, not because I'm not in Christ, but, but would, I, would I be able to stand before you and, and, and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, and I would, I would be able to receive that? Or would I, would I find myself going, no, I know you're saying that because of what you did, but I don't feel that. And so calamity causes us, should cause us, to repent. And repentance for the believer in Christ is a continuous action and lifestyle. It's not the same type of repentance that, that someone who's not trusted in Christ repents and then they believe in Christ. We, we, as believers in Christ, we're not called to constantly re-believe in Christ for salvation. That's not, that's not what, what it is. Repentance is used in two different ways. One, for salvation. But then for the believer, repentance is used in the sense of um, confession and repentance over sin. I've sinned again, I confess, I repent. In other words, I walk away from that. When we confuse those, those two, it's messy. Because that's when we start telling people who haven't trusted in Christ, you've got to stop sinning first. You need to repent of your sins and you need to walk away from that drinking lifestyle, that, that loose lifestyle or, or whatever it is, you know? And, and we say you need to repent of that and turn to Christ. No, you don't clean up your life before you come to Christ. If you had to do that, Christ didn't need to live the perfect life and he didn't need to die a death that was unjust. You've you, you got to separate. Repentance unto belief is for the unbeliever to believe. But repentance for the believer is, I'm aware of what lurks in my heart and sin is still there and I'm not, uh, I'm not an, um, complete yet, but I one day will be. But when I'm aware of sin, I repent of it. I don't give it place in my heart and my life. I don't let it pay rent. I don't, I don't let it squat in there. Nothing. I get rid of it. And that's why Paul in Colossians would say, set your minds above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places, not on things that are below, right? That's what we engage in as believers. There's room and it is necessary that we constantly are paying attention to our hearts and the sin that we allow in our life, that we would be able to repent. So let's let that sit for a minute. Ask the Lord, what do you have with my name on it today? And then we'll break our hearts and what we mean when we say that, God, is help us to see sin the way you see it. That I would learn to hate the sin in my life and in this world the way you hate sin. That I would see it as opposition to you and that I would not tolerate it. Break our hearts. Father, I pray that you would right now let your spirit search us and show us if there's anything in us that's not of you. You might shine your, your light on it and that we then might be called to walk in the light so that we might receive the forgiveness that you have given to us in Christ. Father, as we go through this week, would you show us other areas of our lives where we are tolerating sin. It may be attitudes, it may be, um, it may be actions of some kind. Where something else has our heart and you said, turn to me with all of your heart. And then God, when you show that to us, might we repent. 
And then God, in that day that, that we are looking forward to, that for, for many of us here, it's gonna be a day of, of salvation and a day where we find you to be a refuge, but for so many, God, it's not. And so God, would you let that drive and, and stir up in us an urgency? Now, there are people that, that, that still need to hear the gospel. There are people across the world who still to this day have never heard the gospel. And so God, I pray that you would raise up people right now from this congregation, from El Reno, who you are calling and sending them out to a, to a place where people are unreached with the gospel, that you would start to stir their hearts, that they would be, be used by you to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Thank God, I pray that you would stir our hearts up for our own community, our, our neighbors and, our, and, and the people that we work with and our family members, that God, you would stir up our hearts for them, that we would, we would see them as you see them. And that we would not be content because, well, I'm in Christ, I'm going to heaven. But that instead would fuel us to be able to share how great you are and to, and to share that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in faithful, steadfast love. Because people need to know that, that you are able to, to forgive sin because Christ has taken the judgment for it. So God, do your work in us and do it for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, see you guys next week.